We continue today in our summer sermon series titled God's Vocabulary, where we're visiting a different word each week. Our word this week is this, worship. What is it? How does it shape us? Where and how does it lead us in the living of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ? And so let us listen once more for God's word as we hear these verses from Colossians, the third chapter, beginning with the 15th verse. The author of that letter writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we do pray that your spirit will dwell richly amongst us now, that through its work, the questions and the wondering, all the words that the world fills our heads with might be quieted, that we might hear anew this word, this day, the word that brings life, the word that draws us near to you. Indeed, God, we pray these things, for we know they are possible with you, for you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Saitha McKinley is a beautiful woman. She has this giant smile that just will fill her entire face. She's a woman who loves to paint. She loves to sing. But she will tell you that part of her story also includes wrestling and living with, since a young age, severe mental illness. She has spoken about it in public spaces many times to help break some of that stigma, but Saitha McKinley suffers as a paranoid schizophrenic. I first met Saitha as a student chaplain at a church in the Ormwood Park neighborhood of Atlanta, right next to Grant Park, if anyone's familiar with that area. It's an Episcopal church called Church of the Holy Comforter, I was sent there to do what is known as clinical pastoral education, to be a chaplain for a semester as part of my seminary education. Holy Comforter is a unique congregation in many respects, but especially in the respect of being a church whose congregation, although small, consists nearly entirely of adults with severe mental illness. When Georgia deinstitutionalized their mental health system back many decades ago, Ormwood Park became a place that was about the only place these individuals could find housing that was affordable and where they would be allowed to stay. 
And so after a time, the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta, it, it noticed this need in this population, and they planted this church to be a church specifically for these adults. It's an incredible place to spend time there. During the week, they offer through a program called the Friendship Center Programming. So it's not just on Sundays that these individuals have a community. It's a program that facilitates activities such as gardening and meals and art and yoga. It's an inclusive, loving, and truly joy-filled place. As the chaplain, one of my responsibilities each week was to lead the noonday prayer service. We have this in the Presbyterian tradition. We just don't do it quite as often. The Episcopalians have a beautiful liturgy for noonday prayer every day. It's in their book of common prayer, which I was given a copy of when I arrived and which I stumbled through for the next five months. At one point after leading one of these services, this kind woman who had clearly been an Episcopalian since birth pulled me aside and gently told me I was about the worst leader ever (laughs) of an Episcopalian noonday prayer service. But here's the thing about those services. It was at that noon hour as I gathered with those who chose to come and worship. It was in that space where I think I learned the most about this word, worship. It was in this space where I learned more about what it means to truly worship than just about anywhere else before or since in my life. What it taught me was that worship has less to do with the space you're in. I was used to spaces like this, spacious, beautiful. The church I grew up in was gothic with stained glass. This was more of a room without heating or air, so it got cold and you had to remember your coat in the wintertime. It was a room with a, a table and a small chancel at the front. Worship doesn't have as much to do with space, I learned, or dress. I was used to growing up in a church where you wore Geneva tabs, the pastor did, with their robe. There was none of that in this worship. It didn't have much to do with style. I stumbled through the liturgy every time, but it didn't seem to matter to them much. It certainly didn't have to do with the leader, as they had replaced a competent, well-trained leader with me every weekday. What I learned was that worship has less to do with all of those things and more to do with what happens when people gather together to worship God. Every one of these services, it began with Sytha McKinley. Sytha would normally sit towards the front, and you never really formally began the service. It just started whenever Sytha stood up and began to sing. Sytha sang the same song every single day. And to my knowledge, she's still singing the same song today. Routine is important in a place like this. And the song she sang was this gospel tune called, I Know I've Been Changed. 
Now, there may very well be many verses of I know I've been changed. Scytha really only cared about two. Over and over, she would stand in front. She'd close her eyes and that smile would come and she'd lean her head back and she'd clap her hands as she sang, I know I've been changed because the angels in heaven done signed my name. Over and over. And then she would finish when she was ready, and she would sit down. It was an amazing thing, because though she loved to sing, she wasn't the prettiest singer, but that didn't matter, because when she sang, you could tell it was coming from that deep place. When she sang, it stirred something in all of you out there. It stirred something in me. Every one of those noonday prayer services that began with Scytha singing that song, I left it a different person than when I came in. The lesson that I learned in those noonday prayer services, the lesson that Scytha in particular taught me was that worship happens when we are changed. When we leave the space we have come into differently than when we came in. Aaron and I, we just got back from vacation last week. It's an annual tradition that we have with two other couples who we first met in seminary for seven years, I think this year was. We've gathered almost every summer together in a different place We had six kids this year, five kids, six kids this year. Next year we'll have seven. Not ours, don't, no. -uh. (laughs) It makes it a challenge to keep finding a space that we can all occupy. But anyways, I was sitting with one of my friends uh, this past week during vacation, and I was telling him that I'd be preaching here this morning on this word worship, and I told him that the verses we would be using were these verses from Colossians. And he said to me, you know, Alan, when you talk about worship changing you, it sounds a bit consumeristic. Because after all, worship is not about us, right? Worship is about God. Worship is where we come to be reminded that that there is a God, and guess what? We are not it. Worship is this place where we come to be lifted into the presence, to be reminded of the holiness, the mystery, the primacy of God. He said, you know, when you come and worship, sometimes you leave feeling changed, but sometimes you don't. Have you all ever left a worship feeling a lot the same as when you walked in? I told him, I agree with you. I need to get that on record because I think he's going to listen to this later. I agree with him. That worship is about God. It's not about us. But at the same time, worship, I think, is one of those places in life where God dwells with us. There's that beautiful language from that passage we just heard. God dwells richly amongst us. Worship, what we are doing here, it's one of those places in life where God draws near, God meets us, God walks with us, and yes, I think God changes us. Sometimes, though, God changes us so incrementally and so slowly that it is imperceptible. But nonetheless, God works on us in worship until we can sing. 
There's that lovely language in that passage. It says to sing. Sing the psalms and the songs and the hymns of faith. Sing with gratitude in your heart. Sing, in other words, like Scytha McKinley. So that same friend, he pointed me to an interview. He said, if you're preaching on this passage from Colossians, you have to listen to this interview with a woman named Alice Parker. Alice Parker is a Juilliard-trained composer, conductor, teacher. She's composed, literally to my knowledge, hundreds of pieces of music. She gave this interview a few years ago. She's now 93 years old and still going strong. In this interview, she talks about what song is, and she said some really interesting things, I thought. She said, you know, song, singing, it's really the first language that any of us ever know. Human communication at its most elemental level, that's what singing is. She says, if you listen even to the cry of an infant, a human being that has no words yet, if you listen closely to that cry, you can hear some song in it. She talks about singing as being this basic language that we are all born with. It's not a learned skill. It's an inherent skill for every single person. But then she went on to say a fascinating thing. I don't have a musical brain. I give thanks to God for people like Rhonda and Emery and others who do have musical brains. So maybe they've thought about this and I never have. But she said, when I compose a piece of music, I hear the music I'm composing in my head, but only 5% of what I hear actually makes it onto paper. She says you can't notate, you can't put onto paper the full complexity of the human voice, of the human spirit bringing to life a piece of music. Only 5% of what she hears actually gets put on paper. The other 95%, she says, it comes from within. It comes from within the person who is performing that piece of music. She says, when you hear someone sing and it leaves an imprint on you, when you leave that place having heard that person sing, you leave that place changed, slightly different than the person you were before you heard them sing. She says that happens when you have heard someone singing from their soul. I think that's why I still remember Scytha all these years later. I think Scytha was singing that 95% that never made it onto the page of that piece of music called I've Been Changed. Scytha was someone who was singing from her soul. You know, I think worship, worship what we're doing, worship in its purest form, it comes when people gather and sing from that other 95%. Right? I love that image. Sit with me just for a moment. 5% of music actually makes it onto paper. 95% of it, it comes from within. We gather as people who know the 5% on paper. And I would argue that the 5% we know are the notes that the world has put down for us. We know that song that our professional lives and our social circles and our culture teach us. 
that song with notes called wealth and power and success, whatever those actually mean. But in worship, when we gather in this place as followers of Jesus Christ, we hear a completely different narrative. We hear a story that sounds a lot like our prayer of confession. It's a story that says, you're broken. You are sinful. But guess what? You're forgiven. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Every Sunday when we hear that assurance of pardon, friends, hear the good news, for in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. That's the other 95%. Those are the notes that are called God's invisible grace. How can we not be changed when we hear that song? How can we sing be it with our voices or with our words, our actions, our prayers, how can we sing from anywhere other than the soul when we have heard that song? How can we sing with anything other than sheer joy and gratitude in our hearts? There's a Presbyterian minister, now retired, a longtime professor, at Emory's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, a man named Tom Long. Tom, I think by virtue of all of his years living in Atlanta, grew to be one of the biggest Atlanta Braves baseball fans there ever was. And he wrote about when he lived there, how he loved to go to the stadium. I'm pretty sure he was talking about the old stadium. How he loved to go and watch the Atlanta Braves play baseball. And he's told people, he said, you know, whenever I went to one of these games and the Braves lost, I was always disappointed. It was impossible for me not to leave that ballpark disappointed that my Atlanta Braves had not won the game. But he said, you know, there's also these times when I go to the game and I leave disappointed but still deeply satisfied. Because I can look back on the game and say, you know what? I just witnessed a well-played, good game of baseball. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Do we have baseball fans here? There are these baseball games that happen, and it's impossible not to just enjoy the fact that it's like a chess match out there. They're switching pitchers in and out to match the batters. The outfielders are changing their position. And someone's going to lose at the end of the day. But you can look back and say, you know what? That was a well-played game of baseball. Long ago now, I think in the early 90s, Tom Long wrote a book about the word we are talking about, worship. He wrote a book on worship, and as part of his research, he went around the country and he visited different churches, different congregations to get a sense of the different types of worship that were out there. He says as one of those stops, he visited a congregation, I think in Atlanta, somewhere around Emory. It was a congregation of fairly well-heeled, put together, you know, Presbyterian types, people nice and rigid. That was a joke. He says, I went to this this worship service, and it was basically what I expected. The liturgy was well-crafted and well-executed. The hymns were well-chosen. They matched sort of the theme of the day. The sermon was intelligent. He said the prayers were very well-spoken as well. 
But he recounted how as part of this particular service, they reached the time where they would share joys and concerns. And in this particular church, it was their practice to open the floor, essentially, for anyone who would like to share a joy or concern going on in their lives. Tom says that day, several people stood up and they offered heartfelt and cogent prayers and invitations for their church family to be praying for them. But then suddenly, a man rose from his seat and burst into song. Not particularly pretty song. A man began singing as loud as he could, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam, a cappella. Tom says he felt his face flush. I think the technical term is outbarrassed for this man. And he looked around, wondering how this sophisticated congregation would receive this spectacle of a grown man just standing there in the middle of the pews, warbling out a pious and soupy ditty for five-year-olds, so out of place, so clearly in poor taste. But when he looked around, he said, I was surprised to find not disapproving faces, but instead faces that read acceptance and even approval. He writes, whatever standards of worship excellence were in play in this congregation, they apparently did not prohibit the worshipers from sharing in the sheer enjoyment of a man who so obviously was loved by them, a man who so obviously adored singing a song of devotion that he loved. As well. As I read that story, it struck me that that congregation might just be a church that is tuned into the other 95% of the music. A congregation that does not play along by the notes of the world, which would demean and tell this man to please sit down or remove himself, but rather that song of a person who knows. He is loved and who wants to share it with others. As Tom prepared to leave church that day, he had a thought strike him. He remembers it writing, you know, all I could think of that day is that when the last inning of that worship was over and the benediction had been pronounced, I got up from my seat and made my way towards the door and said to myself, now that was well played. So it was for me every time I heard Sytha McKinley sing. Well played, Sytha. Friends, so may it be for us in our worship this day and always. Amen. Amen.